This episode of the Insurance Coffee House is sponsored by Insurance Search. Insurance Search provides executive recruitment services to insurance companies and brokers in the UK and across the United States. Visit insurance-search.com for more details. The Insurance Coffee House, the place where you get to meet and learn from some of the most successful insurance business leaders from across the world. Hosted by Nick Hoadley, CEO of Insurance Search. Welcome to the Insurance Coffee House USA, the place where you get the chance to meet and learn from some of the most successful insurance business leaders in America. My name is Nick Hoadley and I'm the CEO of Insurance Search. We specialize in helping insurance businesses grow and multiply their growth by attracting, recruiting and retaining the highest performing insurance professionals in the country. Each week in the Coffee House, we interview leading insurance business leaders and discover how they achieve their success, learn what advice they have for other aspiring insurance business leaders, and we discover what makes their business an attractive proposition for high-performing talent. This week, I'm very happy to be joined by David Sandler, the president of the Risk Management Group at Everest Insurance. Welcome to the show, David. Well, thanks, Nick. It's good to be here. David, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Really looking forward to hearing about your career and the work you're doing there at Everest Insurance. Before we go on to the main body of our questions, can I just ask you to share with the listeners a little bit more about your background and your career and how you've got to where you are today? Sure. In terms of my background, after graduating university, I actually went into the banking business before I got into the insurance business and spent about four years in banking before deciding to, to switch over to insurance. The banking industry was going through some turmoil at that time, and it felt like a good time to sort of shift directions. And so I moved over at that time to AIG, spent the next 22 plus years in, uh, in various roles before leaving AIG in late 2015 and joining Everest in early 2016. And I've been at Everest for now, I guess it's about four and a half years. And how are things going at Everest? Clearly, you've now had enough time to get your feet under under the table. What what changes have you seen there during your time? Wow, Nick. I mean, we could we could have an entire podcast around that question. <laughs> so, if you talk about if you talk about Everest, uh, shortly before I got there, the company made a you know a uh, a decision to re- to really try to grow and expand the insurance operation. So. If you look, the, the insurance operation has actually been around since the early 90s. So it's not, you know, it's not a new entity by any stretch of the imagination, but it really is the organization that existed prior to 2015 and, and then the organization from 2015 forward. We're going to, over these, these last five years, we've hired roughly 900 people <laughs> into the insurance operation. We've launched over 150 new products, uh, including most of the businesses that I oversee. The company has almost tripled in size over those five years. So probably the shorter question would be what hasn't changed as opposed to what has. <laughs> How have you found that transition, obviously, from moving from a huge insurance business like AIG into a slightly smaller entity with big growth plans? I think it's probably been the most rewarding job I've had in my career. I mean, to put it in perspective for your listeners, when I left AIG, my last role there, I probably had a couple of hundred people reporting to me and I oversaw, you know, a little over a billion dollars worth of worth of insurance business. When I when I came to Everest, I was asked to, to take on the leadership of two different businesses that had a combined total of four employees. 
So, but, you know, I was, I was really intrigued at the idea of getting it on the ground floor and, and being able to help build something, right? Um, you know, you, you work at a large company like AIG and it's, it's got, you know, it, it, you know, large existing books of business and in, in those sort of roles, it's more sort of maintaining and it's versus AIG for a little over 22 years. You know, I had seen a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of different, the right way to do things, the, you know, things I would have done differently. And so getting here and getting it on the ground floor was, uh, was an opportunity for me to try and build a casualty operation the way I thought one should be built. You get to get to make all my own choices and bring in my own leadership team and, and sort of really, really craft something that, you know, that was really appealing to me. Thank you, David. And in terms of your plan and your targets now over the next sort of three to five years with the business, what what are you looking to achieve there? So, you know, look, obviously the the pandemic at the moment and some of the impact that's had on the economy has probably changed the trajectory of some of those plans. But yeah. but to be candid, you know, Nick, I mean, my groups, you know, are still very much in a overall in a in, in a growth phase. As I said, when I got here, uh, you know, over over the course of the first year or so that I was at Everest. They kept adding to sort of my portfolio with either either because we started up some other new businesses or we moved a couple of existing businesses into my group. Yeah, um, uh, I'm pretty proud of the fact that we're actually going to going to be about the same size in 2020 that we were in 2019. And you know, my group specifically, Everest over, overall continues to grow. But looking forward, I, I I think we've barely scratched the surface of of what it is we can do. And when I look at the next three to five years. I see, I see three years of, of significant growth almost across the board in terms of, in terms of the businesses that I oversee. Uh, it sounds like an incredibly exciting period for the company. Particularly, you, you must be very proud of what you've built so far, but the opportunities you still have there must be very exciting, not only for you, but the whole organization. Yeah. No, look, I think you have a lot of people that have, that have come on board over the last five years. We've We've built an, an incredible leadership team. You know, when I look across the board at my colleagues that are running the other businesses at, at Everest and running some of the functional areas at Everest, I, I know m- many of them for, for many years prior to joining Everest. It's, I, I think, you know, one of the best, if not the best leadership teams in the, in the, in the insurance industry. And so that's part of the reason for my optimism is, yeah. is I, look at the, I look at the talent that we've been able to assemble not just at the leadership level, but but throughout the organization, and I I think we just have a tremendous opportunity in front of us, uh, and I'm and I'm confident we've got the people in place to take advantage of that. So it sounds like you certainly have talent is certainly key, David. Thank you so much for that insight. I think it's really good for our listeners to hear about your background and the work you're doing there ahead of the main body of our questions today. If I can ask you, how did you break into the C-suite and how did you find that transition from your previous position? Yeah, look, it's an interesting question, Nick. I mean, when I, when I kind of look back on it, I, I don't know that I think my path was anything terribly remarkable. When I, when I left Barron's, I really had three sort of career building sort of tenants, if you will, that I was that I wanted to focus on. You know, the first was that I wanted to be on the production side of the business rather than in a functional role, because not that you can't be successful if you rise in an organization in a, in a functional area, but I've always thought it's an easier path to show value if you have revenue yeah. associated with what you do. So I wanted to be in a revenue producing role. 
I've always felt that you're only as powerful as your network, both inside and outside the organization. So I was always trying to build as many connections as I could that could help me to be successful. And then third, uh, you know, and it sounds like basics, but to me, if you work hard, if you hone your craft, if you do the best job you can, and, and if you produce results, others are going to notice and opportunities are going to present themselves. And so, so that formula worked for me, at least early on, and got me to bigger and bigger leadership roles. But it's kind of, it's kind of interesting in our business, right? We, we tend to, you know, particularly when you're on the production side, we tend to reward people that are good producers, that are good deal people. That doesn't necessarily make you a good leader. And I, and I think one of the challenges is as you move up the ladder, you start to realize that the things that allowed you to succeed, the things that got you those early leadership roles are not necessarily the same things that, that you need to, to, to succeed once you get higher up in the organization. Of course, you still got to you know, work hard and produce strong results. Of course, that matters. But I think your emphasis and your focus needs to shift. I mean, for instance, you can't possibly be in the weeds to the same degree so the bar gets higher on talent evaluation because you really have to trust the people that you have working for you, you know, and develop a comfort level with, with not knowing every detail. Mm-hmm. And that's hard for some people. I think the key is figuring out when to lean in. I think ex- successful executives have a nose for when something isn't right, and then they poke at those areas rather than micromanaging everything. And I think if you do that, you'll also develop more, you'll develop stronger and more loyal leaders on your team because you're giving them that room to maneuver and then leaning in when you feel you need. There was a time when I was as technically proficient and knew the specifics of all of my businesses as well as anyone that worked for me. Now, overseeing as many things that I do, I, I can't possibly be that te- technical expert in all areas. It'd be impossible. Yeah. But I have a good business sense. So I ask a lot of questions. I solicit opinions from my team. And I try to have as much information in front of me as possible before rendering a view, while still at the same time, not falling into that analysis paralysis kind of thing. You have to, you have to make decisions quickly and move on. That's right. Thank you, David. I, I think that's often the largest challenge for people moving up into the C-suite is, is moving away from being in charge of the details and, and having a granular view of things and really letting that go, trusting the people that hired beneath them to make those calls and to really focus on that on that bigger picture. So thank you, David. Really mm-hmm. appreciate that answer. David, what would you say has been the biggest in your achievement in your leadership career so far? You know, I would say it's what I've been doing for the last four years at Everest. Um, and why is that? Because to me, there's nothing as personally rewarding as helping to build something from the ground up. You know, as I mentioned earlier, most of the businesses that I oversee, you know, were not in existence, you know, more than a year before I arrived. And some didn't start up until after I arrived or when I arrived. Um, and so, you know, I was able to put my 25 years of experience to use, selecting the talent I wanted to work with, setting the strategy, building from the ground up. And it wasn't always easy. You know, the Everest brand was not that well known, you know, in the early days in some of the businesses we were in, particularly the large account space. But we kept at it. We built steadily, doing the things the right way. And I think those things will help us, you know, become, you know, continue to be a factor in the market for a long time. You know, so I'm, I'm extremely proud of what we built. And while I'm not really one of these guys that thinks about their legacy or what they might leave behind in the industry, you know, um, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I was I was there at the beginning of this transformation of Everest Insurance, and I've gotten to partner with some other outstanding individuals and help shape the company that they're become that Everest is becoming. I yeah. take a lot of pride in that. See, seeing that journey must be must have been fantastic, and actually to be leading people on that journey as well. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you do get a lot of pride. That's brilliant, David. 
how are you adopting new technology or implementing digital change into Everest Insurance to help meet your clients and possibly your your employees' expectations? Yeah, look, Nick, one of the things about our industry is that it's changing so rapidly. And certainly the influence of new technologies and digital changes are, are, are one large aspect of that. It feels like you know, you can't look at any daily news summary without seeing at least one article about insure tech or big data or predictive modeling, disruptors, you know, what have you. You know, what, what I think about the use of technology in the insurance industry, I tend to think about it in terms of, a, you know, achieving one of two goals. It's either they're e- we're either using it to create greater efficiency and effectiveness in our underwriting process, you know, or, or we're looking at it to how do we more effectively deliver services and, and, and value-added items to customers. And while I'm stating those as two different objectives, they're very often intertwined, you know. Uh, and I think which one of those two goals you, you're, you're more focused on probably varies on your customer base. Hmm. So, for instance, in my group, you know, and, and across Everest as a whole, we service customers ranging from small middle market companies all the way up to large Fortune 1000 customers. And their needs differ. And so the role that technology plays in meeting those needs has to differ. So, you know, when I think about that middle market space, which tends to be very high volume, the keys to success there are having a clearly identified and understood appetite, speed to market, you know, as the saying goes, speed kills. Mm. You know, if you're competitive in your offering offering and a step quicker than your competitors, you're going to be successful. So in this space, we're exploring a variety of insure tech tools. You know, we found that we're a better consumer of these tools than a builder of them. So we've actually created an entire team Looking, that's looking at and evaluating different insure tech products that do everything from helping to prioritize incoming submissions to word analysis of manuscripted policy forms to sophisticated web searches to identify hazards in an insurance operations uh, that could put them in or out of appetite to tools that help us identify emerging risks. And that team I mentioned, you know, we, we refer to them internally as our EIQ team was just named InsureTech Incubator of the Year at the 2020 Reactions Awards. So, so we must be doing something right. right. You know, beyond the InsureTech aspect, you know, in-house, we're building predictive models to help identify best-in-class risks. Since most of our submissions now come to us electronically, we're enhancing our ability to upload that information directly into our systems and to turn around ratings and quotes faster. As you move upstream towards larger accounts, I'm a big believer that the human element plays an increasing role in that underwriting process. And so while some of those technologies I've already mentioned play a role there too, I think the focus does start to shift more towards how do you leverage technology to better service these customers? So, you know, that service delivery angle. How do we better automate the delivery of various compliance documents? How do we deliver greater insights and benchmarking to our customers about how they're performing? How do we give uh, customers uh, more access to the entirety of their Everest insurance relationship? So it becomes... You know, it becomes more service delivery, I think, as you move as you move towards larger accounts. But but those are some of the things we're doing. Awesome, David. What do you see as the major challenges ahead for insurance executives? And how do you think they should be adapting to be successful during these times? Wow. Well, again, Nick, we could we could probably spend the entire podcast just on this one question, <laughs> but I'll think I'll think about it sort of in terms of two more immediate issues and two and two bigger picture areas. So, yeah, on the immediate side, you know, I, I think I'd be remiss if we didn't start with the challenge right in front of us, which is just the pandemic and the and the impact it's had on people's lives, the economy, the insurance industry, 
I mean, obviously, you know, my, our hearts all go out to anyone whose family's been per personally touched by this and, you know, and, and had, had, you know, issues to deal with. But, you know, as an insurance executive, when I try to think about the business side of it, I mean, clearly we're past the, you know, get set up to work from home phase. Yeah. Um, and, and now when I think about what, the, what that means for us as a challenge, people are fatigued, right? We're now into what, month seven of, 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 or month eight of working from home. How do, how do you keep people focused and motivated, you know, as they, as they wear down, right? I think a lot about our junior staff. How do, you, how do you develop them? I talked earlier about the importance of networking and building networks. How do you build networks when everybody is remote? Um, we, your customers, how do you walk the line between providing premium and rate relief to those who are really struggling versus, you know, the decisions we have to make to properly protect our own portfolio? You know, and I think these questions just get harder the longer this goes on. And for those of us in cold weather climates, you know, if, uh, if you believe what you hear, the winter isn't going to get any easier. You know, I think if you move beyond the pandemic, there's, there's the challenge of properly managing the current market cycle, you know, the impacts of social inflation on claim severity and the frequency of catastrophe weather events in recent years have created a unique opportunity for carriers in certain product lines. There's perhaps less of that in my particular area of expertise, primary casualty, but when you look at the current state of the excess casualty market, the property market, the DNO market, mm -hmm. I think the carriers that do the best job of deploying their capital and managing through this cycle have the best chance of really setting up their organizations for years to come. You know, if I pull back and, and, and sort of look at the bigger picture, you know, to me, it's really two topics, talent, and then what I refer to as, and what we refer to as at Everest is relevance, right? Talent to me is the lifeblood of your organization, you know, and so the ability to attract, train and retain talent is always a big challenge to manage. You know, there's been a lot written about the brain drain impacting our industry as older executives leave the workforce. The pandemic could actually hasten that, you know, and so I think the winners going forward are going to be those that can paint a more compelling future, you know, as to why incoming talent should want to be part of their particular organization and then what you do to keep them once you get there. And then the last one there is relevance. You know, so how do you stay relevant in a changing market? There's lots of carrier choices out there. The world is changing so rapidly. Broker consolidation, emerging risk, social inflation, technology. How do you adapt to those changes and stay relevant with your trading partners? I think it starts with having a clear understanding of who you are as an organization and what you want to be going forward. And that's not necessarily the same as your plan. It's important. You know, but even the best laid plans by necessity will change as things around you change. It's knowing who you are and what you want to be that allows you to sort of have those core set of beliefs. That's your North Star that guides you, you know, when it is time to course correct. Yeah, David, that theme on talent and relevance, I, I believe, is crucial. And that also brings us very nicely onto our espresso round, which is so-called as the questions are short, sharp and straight to the point. David, can I ask you, are you ready for the espresso round? I'm ready. The espresso round. To kick us off, what are the characteristics about Everest Insurance that makes it such a great place to work at? So, so to me, that starts, Nick, with culture, right? I think all great companies share that in common. They all have developed a culture that permeates throughout the organization and guides how they function. And so as we started out on this journey to build Everest, or the new Everest, if you will, you know, we spent a lot of time determining what kind of culture we wanted to have and how we wanted to go about instilling that throughout the company, you know, and we started with two very basic premises, you know, don't settle when it comes to hiring staff. We were only going to try to hire best in class. 
And two, as funny as it might sound, our, our, our former CEO gave us the guidance of, quote unquote, no jerks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no matter how talented you know, they might otherwise be. And so that allowed us to build a culture around the thoughtful assumption of risk around collaboration and execution. You know, it, it feels like sometimes at, at, at certain companies, the structure is designed to thwart things from getting done mm. rather than helping you get things done. And so I think that's kind of what's helped us make this a special, pla- uh, a special place to work. And I think it also keeps us humble, you know, starting from it's actually part of our culture statement, humility. And I think it, uh, you know, I think it comes from where we started and what we had to build. Yeah. And so when I interview candidates, you know, they, they, look, people don't get to interview with me unless they're probably, you know, have the technical expertise to do the role. So when I'm interviewing people, I'm looking for cultural fit. Yeah. I'm looking for not just talented individuals, but people that I see meshing, you know, with the culture we've created. And we hold roundtables regularly with our staff to reinforce those cultural beliefs. Um, so as a result, We've got great people, not just not just skilled people, but high quality character people that other people want to work with. Mm. And we're all pulling, you know, in the same direction towards the same goal. And I think that's what makes us special. I mean, of course, we've got the other things. We've got the strong balance sheet. You know, our insurance company has been consistently profitable on an attritional you know, basis, yeah. you know, since we started in 2015. We've got a lot of different products. We're in a lot of different areas of the world if people want a different you know, you know, uh, experience, you know, we were a pretty flat organization. So we let people move, move, uh, move, move quickly and make a lot of the decisions on their own, you know, but I really think it's the culture and, uh, and we must be doing something right. Cause we just got named one of the best places to work in insurance for the second year in a row by business insurance. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. That's, that's a great achievement. And just referring back to what you're saying there about best in class, what opportunities do you provide to high performing insurance professionals who want to progress their career to a next level? Yeah. So I look, I, I think we have a wealth of, I think Everest provides a wealth of opportunities for people to advance their career. Yeah. You know, I, I think, first of all, that flat organizational structure that I talked about puts a lot more autonomy and decision making in the hands of our underwriters. You know, at a a number of our competitors, there are plenty of roles that they certainly sound senior, you know, but their but their actual responsibility is to package together information for somebody else to make a decision. That's not the case here. So so you build a lot of skills just on the job, you know, by by having a lot of autonomy to make decisions. Now, of course, we've got the proper governance and place and escalation processes. But I think a key element of professional development is empowering people to make decisions, you know. Then there's the platform, right? As I mentioned earlier, with, with all the different products we have and all the different geographies we have, you know, I, I, th- I think we give people a chance to take their career in a lot of different directions, whether that's, like I said, physical geography or where they want to learn a different, uh, a different product line than the one that they're in. You know, on that point of geography, I, I, would, I would share with your listeners that, you know, I myself have worked in New York, Chicago, San Francisco, and Toronto at various points in my career. And I always encourage people that if your family situation allows for it, you know, work in another part of the country, work in another part of the world. I think you, the perspective you gain is, you know, is, is, is invaluable. And then beyond sort of the structure and the platform, you know, we have a whole talent development infrastructure at Everest, you know, formal development programs in place for aspiring individuals right. at all levels. We have a mentorship program, a number of internal networking groups that can connect individuals with senior level personnel. You know, we even actually, Nick, have our own version of what you and I are doing today. We have our own leadership coffee hours in which a senior member of the leadership team, you know, including some of our board members, 
talk about their careers and the leadership lessons they've learned along the way. So I think we do a lot. Fantastic. It certainly sounds like it sounds like a great opportunity for any insurance executives out there listening to the show today. And glad that you've got an internal version of your own of the insurance coffee house. I'm very happy to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I think obviously we talked about culture a lot. What do you look for in terms of skills and, and behaviors when hiring new staff to your team? Well, look, I think uh, I'm, I'm not going to include knowledge and expertise in that because to me, I think that's a given. You've got, you've got to have sort of some of the basic skill sets in order to be able to, to succeed, I think, in, in any role. But, you know, I think, you know, if there's one thing, you know, that we've talked about quite a bit already is that the world around us and the industry around us is changing rapidly. And so, so because of that, to me, when I think about the skills and behaviors that an executive needs, I think it starts with adaptability. Right. I think, it, you know, relying on doing things the way you've always done them is is ultimately going to be a recipe for failure. And I think that cuts across every aspect of the business. You know, the recruiting process for talent's not the same. What matters to them is not the same. You know, you need to constantly be looking at your processes to make sure you're doing them efficiently and evaluating tools and technology. So being able to adjust your approach, being able to adapt as things around you change and being comfortable operating in an environment of rapid change, you know, to me is one of the core things. The second is communication and collaboration, right? You can't do it alone. You know, when you're aligned, the team is always more powerful than the individual. And I think the key part of that is people want to understand the why, right? Why are we doing what we're doing? Why is this our strategy? Why don't we want to do that? I think if you get people to understand the why, you get greater buy-in, you get loyalty, you get greater effectiveness, you know, and then, of course, the collaboration part, understanding, appreciating, incorporating into your process, the perspectives of other stakeholders is critical, yeah. you know. And then the third, I, I would say, Nick, is ownership and accountability. I don't, I, I don't think it's possible to be a respected leader in any organization unless you're willing to make decisions and own the outcome of those decisions. You know, whether something works well or it goes poorly as the leader of the team, you own it. You know, it's like the quarterback of a football team. You know, they often get too much of the glory when things go well or too much of the blame when things go poorly. It's same with senior executives. It just goes with the territory. So part of that is knowing that everything isn't going to go as, oh, as planned. And it's what you do after something hasn't gone right that really separates great leaders from average ones. Great organizations make adjustments. They don't just make the same mistakes over and over again. And I don't know how you can do that. I don't know how you can instill that kind of discipline in your team if you don't have that ownership and accountability. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's, it's, it's a core part of being a transparent and authentic leader. So I'd say those are the three. What do you then find as the biggest challenge when attracting those executives or attracting those senior leadership talent to your business? And what could be the frustrations with the recruitment process? Sure. Well, might sound ironic to your listeners that having said that we've hired 900 people in the last five years, that we, uh, that we would have frustrations or challenges with the recruiting process. But, but talent acquisition is hard. Right, good good people are in high demand, and you can never have enough of them. And and there's lots of challenges and frustrations in that process. It's it's long, right? You're often, particularly when you're talking about senior people, you're often targeting people for quite some time, wooing them for quite some time before you get them. If it's somebody that you don't have a prior relationship with, I think it's very tough in the span of a thirty or sixty minute interview to gauge if they're going to be the right fit. Sometimes you get the good vibes right away, but, but often you don't. So sometimes it's bringing people back two or three times, which, yeah. which adds to the length of the process. 
you know, I found that even when I get referrals from people that I trust, they're not always reliable because they don't, they don't know inherently what you're looking for. There's no way for them to know, you know, I think sometimes it's not always clear how, how serious a candidate is about making a change or if they're simply testing the market, mm-hmm. you know, and then of course it's never done until it's done. Right. You know, if you're talking about a talented individual, their, their current employer doesn't want to lose them. So, you know, you know, once the, once they, you know, once they find out about that, you're in a, you're in a battle and you're hoping that you've, you've made enough of a compelling offer. I think it's, I think it's an irony of our business that while, most, most solid organizations, strong organizations recognize that talent is critical to their success. A lot of us are not great at recruiting high-end talent. You know, I think internal recruiting departments, uh, I, I really feel for them because I think they're in virtually an impossible situation, right? I, I think, you know, they're generally not huge, huge parts of your organization people-wise and, and expecting them to know talent across so many different disciplines and across so many different, different geographies, you know, it's an impossible ask, and I think that's why you see so many, you know, executive search firms out there. I also think companies often make the mistake of not aligning their recruiting areas with their business units. Yeah. Not that they need to be in the same reporting structure. I think they're different disciplines. But if your recruiting folks don't understand your business and your talent needs, how can they possibly identify good candidates for you? But to be honest with you, I think the best recruiting tool of all is, is having great people because good people want to work with other good people. So mm-hmm. if you've got some of them, They'll help you attract the right talent. And candidly, every time we bring in a new, a new top talented, talented person, we just got a, uh, we just got a new Rolodex of potential candidates for people to go talk to. Um, the other key is understanding that it never stops, right? You're never, you're never done recruiting. I, I would tell you that I probably spend, you know, 15 to 20% of my time sort of keeping an eye out for new talent. Mm-hmm. You know, even if I don't have a, even if I don't have a need at the moment, um, constantly looking for it. Sometimes I'll create the need <laughs> if the right person becomes available. So it's uh, it's hard work and it it never stops. <laughs> certainly, certainly. I really think communication is the key and under- understanding, like you said there, understanding the business needs, whether that's your internal recruitment function or your executive search providers. If the communication is there, they've got that understanding of exactly what you need and the, the culture of the business, then it means that actually they should be able to bring that those candidates through and bring those talent through pretty much pre-sold on the business so that the the end result is that interview is is just getting things across the line rather than starting from a cold situation when 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 you first meet someone so i think yeah having everybody sort of pushing in the same direction and everybody understanding the cultural fit and the requirements i think is is really essential and i think it sounds like you've certainly done well over the last few years with those 900 recruits <laughs> that you've brought into the business. David, if there are any insurance executives out there now in the US considering their next move or opportunity, what would be your advice be to them? Well, look, Nick, this this may sound overly simplistic, but but my advice would be to just take your time, really really take your time to figure out why you're considering a move in the first place mm. and what it is that you're really looking for, right? Every job has pluses and minuses. Make sure you know what you love or hate about your current job so you know what has to be present in the next one as well as what to avoid. I, I sometimes don't think people take enough time to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're, if you're talented and good at what you do, there's going to be demand for your services. So how do you recognize the right, right fit when it comes along? When I, when I left AIG and was looking at my next, you know, looking for my next opportunity, I really had three criteria in mind mm-hmm. that were all candidly a, a bit vague, right? I, I, I wanted to work with great people. 
you know, after having been at a behemoth of a company like AIG, I wanted a I wanted to work for a smaller company where I could have a, a greater influence over the direction and strategy of the business. And I wanted to be challenged with something I really hadn't done before. You know, and, and it was interesting because, you know, even though I had spent my I've spent my entire career, you know, in casualty underwriting roles, being part of a casualty underwriting operation wasn't part of my criterion. You know, neither was I have to be the head of this or I have to manage so many people or I have to control so much premium volume. Like I said, when I left AIG and came to Everest, I went from having a lot of people and a lot of volume, business volume to having almost, almost no business at the start. You know, but the fit was right. Everest checked the boxes of what I was looking for. Yeah. You know, I, I think if I hadn't done that mental work up front to know that, maybe I would have passed on Everest in favor of another opportunity that on the face of it might have looked more prestigious. You know, but as it turned out, it couldn't have worked out better for me. I think a big part of it is knowing yourself and what makes you happy. The next move doesn't automatically have to be bigger and better. It could be just about what, what makes you happier to get up and go to work each day. That's not always how people think. And I think it's a mistake, you know, and while it's, you know, it's common now, nowadays for people to jump around a lot to different companies in the course of their career, there's nothing wrong with that. But to me, unless you're in really desperate straits, I would never go to a company where I didn't think there was at least the possibility that I could end up being there for some time. Yeah. Because I think, I think stability is a good thing if you can, if you can manage it. So, so that'd be my advice. Just, just, just make sure you've thought it through, right? You're, to think particularly at the executive level, you know, that those are those are big moves you're making. Just make them for the right reasons. David, I think that's incredibly important. And I think the proof is certainly in the pudding there with your own experience and how the success of your role has turned out there at, at Everest Insurance. I think we certainly discuss a lot with our senior talent. It's almost a reverse recruiting process. So think about things if you're a hiring manager, but switching things around. So working out what your strengths and weaknesses are, how you see a role that would be suitable for you, what what you enjoy doing, what you don't enjoy doing, rather than just going after a job title or just going after a firm that you you, you think would add value to your career. I think I think that internal analysis is absolutely key in finding that right right fit for someone. Thank you, David. And I think you're you're certainly excellent proof of that. We're almost at the end of our time together in the Insurance Coffee House USA. But before we go, can I just ask, Dave, do you have one piece of closing advice? And how would our listeners go about reaching out to you after the show? Well, start with the second part of that first. In, ter- in terms of contacting me, um, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn and regularly check my account. So anyone can feel free to reach out to me through LinkedIn. And that's probably the best way to get a hold of me. But in terms of that final piece of advice, um, I would just say no matter no matter what role you're in, but especially if you're leading other people, just be yourself and be authentic, right? People people know when you're being real with them versus pretending to be something you think they, you know, they want you to be. And when you do that, some amazing things happen, right? If you're if you're authentic with your people, you build trust, you build loyalty, you build a team. And part of that is sometimes admitting when you don't know the answer, sometimes opening up a little, showing a little bit of vulnerability. I actually think it makes you a stronger leader. Mm. Um, that's not always easy for people because they think they're showing weakness when in fact they're showing strength mm. and they're, and they're letting other people in. It doesn't mean that you're soft. <laughs> it means being true to who you are in your own core set of beliefs and how you conduct and drive a business. You know, I failed plenty of times in my career. I've always believed that win or lose, I'll be okay with the outcome. As long as I can look in the mirror and say, I did the best I could. I was true to who I was as a person and I did it the way I thought it was right. So 
So that's my advice. Be, don't, whatever role you're in, be who you are and be authentic to who you are. Absolutely. Absolutely. David, thank you so much for joining us in the Insurance Coffee House USA today. No, it was a pleasure. It's been a real, real, real pleasure. I know we've had a few little issues on the on the technical side of things, but it's been fantastic to have you join us today. Thanks, Nick. It was a, it was a pleasure being here. This was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me to come on. To all the insurance business leaders out there listening, whether you are in the United States or based internationally in the UK, Europe or around the world, we thank you for listening. And I'm sure you would have gained an awful lot of good insight and learnings from from David today. If you did enjoy the show, please do leave us a review on iTunes or your podcast app and make sure that you download and subscribe to the show so that you receive each one of our episodes directly into your inbox each week. Till next time, I've been Nick Hoadley. This has been the Insurance Coffee House USA. You've been listening to the Insurance Coffee House with Nick Hoadley. Join us next time to hear more insights and inspiring success stories to help you become a better insurance business leader. Available to download or subscribe now.